Okay, this is David Spence. I'm here with uh, Joshua Rhodes and Colin Meehan. Joshua is the senior energy or a senior energy system modeler and analyst at Vibrant Clean Energy in Boulder, Colorado, uh, where he, among other things, models green energy transition scenarios, uh, formerly also of the University of Texas Energy Institute. Colin Meehan is Director of Regulatory Affairs at First Solar in Austin, Texas. Uh, First Solar is a major developer of um, utility scale and, and also just a smaller uh, PV photovoltaic uh, solar projects. Um, and uh, as the title implies, Colin works on regulatory and policy issues. And Colin uh, is also formerly of Environmental Defense Fund. Is that right, Colin? That's right. Yeah. So uh, thank you both for being here today. Yeah, for sure. Happy to be here. So the, I want to talk today about um, some issues raised by a paper or a couple of papers of which uh, Josh Rhodes is co-author uh, that uh, deal with uh, the problem of ensuring grid stability, keeping the lights on as, uh, as renewables comprise an ever larger percentage of the generation mix. And this is obviously a, a problem or an issue that's been worried about for quite some time. It's probably fair to say that there's been a little bit of a cry wolf problem uh, associated with this issue. It turns out we've been able to integrate a lot more wind and solar power than we thought we would without really triggering grid instability issues. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but as wind and solar continue to grow and continue to uh, grab a larger market share in at various regional grids throughout the country, it's still a problem we have to, to think about and, and, and deserving of our attention. At, at the end of The Boy Who Cried Wolf, I think uh, all the sheep were eaten, if I'm not mistaken. So so we have to keep thinking about it, and, and, and that's what these papers do. They help us understand this problem. And in particular, the these papers address questions associated with the role of system inertia uh, as as renewables uh, replace more traditional thermal power plants. And so I thought it would be helpful for listeners to begin uh, with an explanation of what system inertia is and what role it plays in keeping the lights on. And I'm going to ask you, Josh, to, to give us a little primer on that to start. Sure, I'll do my best. It's quite the wonky topic, um, but it's uh, it's definitely something that is uh, that is important. Um, so we use this term inertia. It, well, it, inertia is traditionally how we have maintained um, grid stability, and what I mean by grid stability is I'm talking about the frequency of the grid. And so in the um, in the U.S., the grid spins um, or the grid has a frequency of 60 hertz. That means that all the power plants that are connected to the grid, the steel shafts inside of them are spinning at 60 revolutions per second. So it's pretty fast. And whenever supply equals demand, whenever the grid is in balance, the frequency of the grid is also at 60 hertz. But if we have an issue, say we have a loss of supply, say a power plant trips offline, then that frequency can start declining. And that can be a problem because the grid is designed to operate at this optimal frequency. And, and the, the, the deviations around that, um, around that 60 hertz that we want to keep it at are very, very small. So if we have a power plant that falls off and the frequency starts declining, 
We have this thing built in the in the grid called inertia. And we call it inertia because it it actually is inertia if you remember from from junior high physics. Um, all the steel shafts inside of a power plant um, are spinning at 60 hertz. And if the if the grid uh, frequency starts to decline, that spinning of those steel shafts actually pushes back against a decline in frequency. And that's where the name inertia comes from, because inertia, you know, is um, these spinning things do not want to uh, change speed that they want to they want to keep spinning. And so the idea behind inertia is it gives the grid enough time to bring other resources online to match supply and demand. Because if we don't match supply and demand, we can get this cascading failure where we end up with a blackout. And we definitely don't ever want to get to that point. Right. So you're, so these papers uh, are, are essentially models of um, the Texas grid, the so-called ERCOT grid, uh, and mo- modeling the role of inertia in providing that grid stability uh, under various scenarios in which renewables grow and replace certain sort of traditionally dispatchable power plants. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the major findings from the paper? The, the, let's start with the paper that was published in Energy Policy this year. Yes, yeah, so we have a, a paper published in Energy called um, Evaluating Rotational Inertia as a Component of Grid Reliability with High Penetrations of Variable Renewable Energy. Great title. Um, I, just, I do want to give a shout out to uh, the um, the the lead author uh, Sam Johnson is one of the grad student um, in the Weber Energy Group who has done um, at the University of Texas who's done uh, who did uh, all the modeling work for this paper and I'm uh, a co-author on it. But one of the things um, we looked at um, in this paper were we we looked at um, you know how much renewable energy as a as a percentage of total energy uh, produced over a year. Can we get to before we start having, um, before we start running into inertial issues? Um, and so ERCOT has, uh, so ERCOT has calculated that they need, um, a, a unit, 100 gigawatt seconds of inertia on the grid at all times. And I won't go into what that, um, what that, uh, figure, what, what the units on that actually mean, but, it is basically enough inertia that if the largest power plant were to trip offline, which in, in ERCOT is the South Texas Project nuclear plant, if it were to trip offline, it would take um, two, uh, 2,700 megawatts of uh, supply offline uh, instantaneously. And so if that were to happen, ERCOT has calculated they need 100 gigawatt seconds of other spinning mass in the system all around to be able to push back against the frequency decline that would um, that would happen because of that uh, plant tripping offline to give the grid enough time to bring other resources on the system um, to be able to, you know, stop um, a runaway um, grid failure. And so what we found in this paper was that we could get up to about 30% of our uh, total energy in ERCOT over the entire year from uh, – uh, non-synchronous uh, generation, which is code word here for, for wind and solar, and we would not run into the uh, inertia constraint at all. So we could get 30%. For reference, um, in 2018, we got about 20% of our energy from uh, from wind um, and solar, and that number is projected to grow, but we haven't reached the point where it is um, an issue yet. And so that's kind of one of the main kind of findings of, of the paper. Whenever in the model we, uh, 
one interesting takeaway from, from the models, whenever we push um, that, um, that level further, whenever we go 40, 50, 60% um, or, or beyond um, or higher than 30% uh, um, <clears throat> generation energy from um, wind and solar, we do find that we run into times whenever that, um, that inertial constraint uh, becomes binding, meaning that um, the model has to do other things in order to uh, keep the, um, um, the, the system, to keep the inertia at 100 gigawatt seconds. And one of the interesting thing, one, the intuitive thing that you would have thought the model would do was that it would uh, curtail renewable energy and just bring other, um, other generators online. But, one of the, but we found out that it didn't actually do that because it's actually cheaper to keep the renewable energy going but just bring other, a bunch of other plants online at their minimum load to provide the system with inertia. Because even if a plant is only operating at 20% of its capacity, you still get 100% of its inertia on the grid. And so that was one of the, kind of an interesting trade-off that we kind of found out that it's even – even in these situations, it's it's still cheaper to push the renewable energy to the system, even if we're bringing other generation assets online. Interesting, interesting. And so, what 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 when these other plants have to come online? What does that mean for emissions? Um, it does mean that um, emissions can uh, can rise in those um, in those instances, um, and, and so at, at very low levels, they can actually produce um, more emissions. More emissions per, per unit of output. Yes, more emissions per megawatt hour generated, yes. Yeah, I just want to – I think this is an important, you know, point to kind of bring in the discussion on the ability of, of renewable energy to provide uh, services that would be equivalent to inertia. So you talk a little bit in this paper, and I know another paper that you're working on, on fast frequency response. And I'm wondering if you could speak to um, whether you modeled that uh, ability in this paper and, and, and how you treated that or how that could be treated in the future. We do have another paper that is currently under review Again, um, the lead author is Sam Johnson, called Understanding the Impact of Non-Synchronous Generation on Grid Stability and uh, Identifying Mitigation Pathways. Now, I'll talk about some results of this paper with the caveat that this, you know, it's still in review, so it may change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we did look at the ability, in this case, of um, renewables to provide fast frequency response and how that might um, help um, help the grid um, uh, remain stable. And one of the things we found out that um, because because renewables are not, you know, uh, uh, directly coupled um, to to the grid, they that this the fast frequency response that they need to provide needs to be relatively quick in order to be able to 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 have benefit. And so the kind of the optimal uh, response time that we uh, modeled, if renewable energy could respond within 15 cycles about a quarter of a second that we could get to much higher levels of renewable energy because then we could be able to, um, you know, utilize the, these services um, as a substitute for uh, traditional rotational inertia. Colin, do, do the markets in which, with which you're familiar, do they have the institutional environment in place that would allow uh, renewables to try to provide that kind of substitute for traditional inertia? The answer is no at this point. Um, you know, ERCOT has looked at this before, 
And uh, they tried to move forward a fast frequency frequency response ancillary service as part of its future ancillary service task force initiative. Um, Unfortunately, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, um, the, the, the fact of the matter was that the market really wasn't ready for it. And what I mean by that is the market participants weren't ready for it. So today, um, we have a market where overwhelmingly the participants in ancillary services have designed um, their systems, their power plants, to operate in the current ancillary services framework. Um, and they're not as interested in seeing changes to ancillary services that would enable the participation of other kinds of technology. I don't think that any uh, grid operator in the U.S., in the lower 48, um, is incorporating that Josh is talking about today. The important thing, um, and and Josh and Sam speak to this a little bit in their paper, is to understand that the technical capability is there. It exists today. We're installing it in all of our solar power plants at First Solar. Um, And we've done a number of, we've done a couple of different studies, one with ERCOT and one with the California ISO to demonstrate those technical capabilities. But the markets just aren't there, as, as you indicated, David. Yeah, that's one of the things we we talk about in this paper is, um, you know, the 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 need for a, basically a you know a, an inertial market. Um, inertia is kind of um, you know provided free of charge these these days. Um, it's just part of a byproduct of um, you know uh, thermal generation, um, and so you know if if that were broken out into a market, there would be you know, the ability of other services, be they renewables or be they uh, flywheels or other, you know, technologies, anything that can provide that service at the cheapest cost um, to be able to get into that market, which, um, you know, should drive down, you know, the, the cost of keeping the grid stable. Colin, does, um, does uh, the idea that renewables might provide some sort of substitute for inertia imply that they will not be operating at full tilt? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, basically, I I guess it depends on what you would characterize as full tilt, right? Um, So when we talk about those, we're talking about providing energy, providing megawatt hours. Um, But in reality, what we're showing is that uh, these renewable energy resources can contribute to grid stability in a variety of ways. We can provide frequency response or fast frequency response. You know, it, it, it would require us to not put out as much energy, but we would be providing it as an alternative service. We would be providing grid stability, you know, through these other means. And I think that's one of the real uh, difficulties with, um, with developing a market for a totally different set of technologies because the current um, the current suite of technologies that provide uh, inertial response, um, as as Josh said, they just kind of provide it as a, a gimme. You know, it's 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 free. There's no real market for it, um, and it is not a part of their operating costs. It doesn't increase their variable costs or um, or their operating costs in general. Um, whereas for solar, we have um, we have an opportunity cost. Right. So if we're going to be providing uh, these sort of fast frequency response services um, and we're not providing electricity, then how do we get compensated in a way that, you know, that we're able to operate and continue to build new power plants to supply energy to the system? Inertial response is not a necessity. What is a necessity are services that can help us maintain frequency on the system, whether that's fast frequency response or inertia. Yeah, and so just to nail down that point that was the sort of basis of my question, 
assuming we want to transition to greener technologies over time, because of this opportunity cost that wind and solar face, uh, if they're going to participate in ancillary services market, or at least in the some substituting for inertia, it's really, really important that they be compensated for, for, for doing that or that there be an opportunity for compensation for doing that. And the, the absence of that opportunity seems to be, you know, part of the problem here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said, we have the equipment installed on, on gigawatts worth of systems throughout the U.S., um, we're able to provide, whether it's fast frequency response, conventional frequency response, uh, you know, different types of uh, ramping products, but there aren't really effective markets uh, that we can participate in. Josh, in the paper, you mentioned another uh, constraint in ERCOT that affected, uh, I'm talking about the published paper, another constraint in ERCOT that affected your results, and that was a transmission constraint. Can you talk a little bit about the role of that in your model? Yeah. So, um, so in our, in our model, as we, uh, ratcheted up the, the total amount of energy, um, or the, the total amount of wind and solar capacity on the grid, um, we did run into, uh, at high levels of, of, of wind and solar, we did run into instances of curtailment, but that curtailment was driven by, uh, lack of transmission, um, um, capacity to move that, uh, renewable energy, which for wind typically uh, is in West Texas and a lot of solar as well to move that to the, to the load, which is happens to be in the central and Eastern part of the state. And so that was kind of the, you know, one of the main, um, or, or that was the, the, the actual only, um, uh, driver that reduced the, uh, or that, uh, led to renewable energy, um, curtailment in the model. And we have a whole lot of, and this is for either of you, but we have a whole lot of solar in the queue in West Texas. Um, and it, it, is all of that developable uh, with current transmission capacity, or is, there gonna, is this constraint going to become more acute in the near future? So I will say that from a, from a market perspective, that constraint is already acute. And the good thing is what you're starting to see, if you look at the queue, is more uh, development in the north and south zone, so closer into load. But mm -hmm. what we are starting to see um, is when we're, when we're talking to people that are interested in buying new solar, um, they're really not interested in buying it from West Texas. They want to get it, um, you know, in one of the closer in load zone hubs or something like that. It is a constraint. Um, to the system, I, I, I don't think today it is a physical constraint, um, but it is becoming a financial constraint where the risk of building in West Texas and the possibility of, of that curtailment in the future makes it more difficult to finance a project. So more developers are looking to locate closer to load. Yeah, I ask because this is a sort of pet peeve of mine, the, the amount of really cheap, clean power that we could be accessing if we could only site transmission more easily and quickly. Um, it seems like we're leaving a lot of benefits, both financial and environmental, on the table by our, by the difficulty of doing that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, so let me ask another question that, that's raised by the second paper, Josh, or at least bring a point out here, which I thought was really interesting, which is that um, this this amount of inertia you need is highly dependent upon the size of your of the biggest plant in your system, right? Um, and and you modeled what would happen if um, 
if the South Texas project exited the ERCOT system. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, so again, yeah. So the inertia level is set at 100 gigawatt seconds in ERCOT um, based on um, the the um, if we took off the South Texas project nuclear plant, the inertia constraint drops down to about 60 gigawatt seconds, which would allow us to get um, significantly more renewable energy on the system um, because we the the constraint is much lower. However, given our current grid mix. That would result in a in a 25% increase in the amount of CO2 emissions um, for the system, which is not insignificant. And so it's this kind of interesting trade-off where if we remove that constraint um, or we lessen that constraint, we can get more renewable energy on the system, but our carbon emissions go up because a lot of um, a lot of those megawatt hours are then made up by um, other technologies such as uh, coal and natural gas. And, and Josh, in, in this uh, second paper that's under review, uh, you look a little bit at the ability of wind and solar to provide those services. And, it, and at, at least by my read, um, that has a substantial uh, impact in, in reducing the need for other uh, systems or uh, sorry, other power plants to provide those services, right? Yes. Yes. So if, um, so if we could get 525 megawatts of fast frequency response um, within with a response time of 15 cycles, again, so, you know, a quarter of a second, then we can uh, we reduce the amount of, you know, critical inertia times significantly. And so what that translates into is if we can get, um, you know, about half a gigawatt of fast frequency response from wind and solar within 15 cycles, we can get a lot more wind and solar on the system and keep the grid stable. Apropos of that, Colin, isn't uh, first didn't first solar participate in some sort of pilot or experiment in Florida about optimizing uh, sort of a utility scale solar uh, at, at high penetrations? Am, am I misremembering that? Uh, no, you're not. We, we uh, participated in a study with Tampa Electric Company, um, and uh, and we looked at a variety of a variety of portfolios, um, you know, how much solar you could add to the system um, and depending on how you operated that solar, what was the most economic outcome for ratepayers? What we found is um, as you increase the use of solar project uh, capabilities, the flexibility of natural inverter-based resources, sorry, the natural flexibility of inverter-based resources, the ability to instantaneously ramp up and down depending on the system's needs, you can dramatically increase uh, the ability of the system to incorporate solar power while still reducing ratepayer costs um, and relying significantly less actually on thermal resources for providing the kind of ancillary services that they conventionally do. And, and in fact, what we found is you wouldn't need to install as much storage in the near term either. And, and so, you know, what this shows to me is, uh, you know, if, if we want to build uh, systems to really take advantage of inverter-based resources, which I, I think we need to, uh, there's there's no question there. These are these are the power plants of the future. As Josh said today, about half of uh, new capacity is gas, about half of it's wind and solar. We know that's going to shift over time towards more wind and solar and storage. So we need to design markets and and policies that can incorporate these capabilities. So uh, in that kind of scenario that was modeled in Florida, um, 
when you look at sort of total effect on total system costs, are we necessarily sort of implying um, a traditionally regulated market or could that work with in a deregulated retail market where and wholesale market where all these are arm's length transactions? Um, so I don't the, the study is definitely for a vertically integrated utility. Um, that being said, and, and, you know, we would like to do this study um, in a uh, in a restructured wholesale market. Um, that being said, this is more of an operational study. So what are the capabilities of of your portfolio? You know, given you've got a certain amount of gas on the system, a limited amount of transmission, certain amount of solar, coal. I don't think they have any nuclear. Um, that should apply across uh, market style. So it should work in a restructured market. Um, we, we would like to study that more, but I don't see any barriers there. I, I think the, the barriers, again, they're not technical, they're market barriers. And, and that's something we should be able to work on. You know, our, our modeling shows that, um, that most grids um, can, can incorporate more renewables than they currently have without this being an issue. Um, you know, we, we found in, in, in Urca, we could get up to 30% of our annual energy um, from wind and solar. We're only at about 20% now, so there's plenty of room for more um, without this becoming an issue. But I think as, um, as, as Colin has demonstrated, you know, it will become an issue. And so, um, you know, starting to figure that out now, um, while it's not an issue, would be uh, rather prudent for, for those who wish to take advantage of those markets. So thanks very much, both you, Colin and, and Josh, for sitting down to talk to us today. That's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has been. Always nice to talk to both of you.